Welcome to episode 27 of the Lady Science Podcast. This podcast is a monthly deep dive on topics centered on women and gender in the history and popular culture of science. As usual, with you every month are the editors of Lady Science Magazine. I'm Anna Reeser, co-founder and co-editor-in-chief of Lady Science. I'm Layla McNeil, the other founder and editor-in-chief of Lady Science. And I'm Rebecca Ortenberg, Lady Science's managing editor. So today on the show, uh, we are going to be talking about something that we've talked about plenty of times on the show over the last couple of years, technology. Um, usually this involves dunking on tech bros of the Silicon Valley variety <laughs> in one way or another. I mean, I can't guarantee that won't somehow come up in this episode, but that's not the focus this time. Um, today we're going to be talking about technology um, but taking a slightly different view by looking at open technology and open source communities. And later in the show, communication scholar Christina Hester Dunbar is going to join us uh, to talk about her new book, Hacking Diversity, and some of the ways that open source advocates are attempting to improve diversity in their own communities. Um, but first, to get us started, I want to explain exactly what open source is and what it isn't. So generally, uh, open source refers to software that users can modify, adapt, and share um, because it's designed to be publicly accessible. So the source code that underpins open source software can be accessed and changed by anyone. So on the other hand, on in non-open source software, so this is what we would call proprietary software, the source code is only available to the person or organization who created it. So that means that users get what they get and don't have the option to adapt it for other uses. So this includes things that we're all familiar with, like Microsoft Office and Adobe. And most people use both open source and proprietary software uh, pretty regularly. Um, so proprietary probably comes in the form of something obvious like Microsoft. And then open source uh, in the form of something like Wikipedia which likely pops up as like the first search result in Google when you're trying to look something up. Um, open source also comes with a particular kind of ethos that uh, promotes collaboration, creativity, transparency, uh, meritocracy, and something that we're going to talk a little bit more about later with Christina Hester Dunbar uh, called voluntarism. Is that how you say it? Voluntarism? I think yeah, that's probably fine. I think it's all. It sounds if you say it fast, it comes out sounding the same. Volunteerism. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there we go. Uh, I, I think that we would all agree that most of these principles of open source they are good, generally admirable, and good. Thumbs up. <laughs> but open source projects and communities can be sort of just as prone to cultural biases and power hierarchies as any other community. Surprise. And after. <laughs> yes, I mean, like, after all, I, like everything else in tech, open source is created and shaped by live human people beings. So let's go back to Wikipedia. The online encyclopedia is something we've all probably heard of, if not used at some point. Certainly all of us have used Wikipedia. And Wikipedia uses open source code so that a community of users can create new entries and edit them. And in the spirit of open source, Wikipedia relies on that transparency so people can 
go in behind the scenes and see everything that's been tweaked in an article and you can kind of see the history of its creation and editing. And who who did it, their usernames yes. as well, yeah. Yes. It relies on collaboration through its community of writers and editors to create entries that are fact-checked, edited, well-sourced. That's the that's the ideal. <laughs> yeah, we're going to get to that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And it relies on this sort of spirit of volunteerism, meaning that if you want to do it, you can, and you volunteer to be a Wikipedia editor. Anybody can do that. So some genuinely great things have come out of this. You know, some teachers and professors have students uh, research, write, and create Wikipedia entries in lieu of papers, which is like a really cool assignment where students can like see their work, you know, being useful out in the world. Um, they get, they get it, it gets to be a grade, but it kind of raises the stakes for students. So that's like, that's pretty cool. Um, but they're, you know, not everything is everything. (laughs) (laughs) Surprise, uh, it, uh, there are issues as well. Um, and especially, uh, over the last couple years, uh, it's, we've seen Wikipedia really start to reproduce or the reproduction become more obvious of um, some of the same problems of equity and conclusion um, that we see in other communities um, and certainly uh, not that different than we see in all of those terrible stories about Silicon Valley tech bros that we like to complain about. Uh, <laughs> so, for instance, uh, there is a massive, massive, obvious gender gap on the platform. About 90% of Wikipedia's editors are men, which is one of those things that it's just like, it's so on the nose as to feel fake. Um, 90% of Wikipedia's (laughs) editors are men. Uh, And only 18% of Wikipedia's 1.5 million biographies are about women. Just again, it's just it's so on the nose, guys. Um, well, and that that to me still sounds incredible because um, there's always like Wikipedia editathons for women in art, women yeah. in science, women in literature, women in philosophy, like to like build up this biographical database. Yeah. It's gotten better, and it would have gotten worse if not for all of these efforts. And yet here we are. Um, And that's, I'm like, this is the thing where it's like you can kind of see like a one-to-one obvious ratio between like the people who are making a thing and then what they produce. And when the majority of community members are men, it's just, it's not that surprising that so relatively few entries are about women. Uh, But that brings up the question. So this is an open source platform where participation is voluntary, right? You don't need a computer science degree from an Ivy League school to participate. Um, You don't have to impress some tech bro to get a job at his fancy startup. Uh, The code to use Wikipedia is pretty easy to learn. It's not as it's not Mm -hmm. like some kind of complex uh, like programming software or programming uh, language. It's easier than HTML, frankly. Um, So what's going on here uh why don't more women just create more biographies of women if uh that's what they want and as we were just uh talking about many women have and why hasn't that moved the needle well i think we can start uh to figure that out um by looking at what happens to all of those biographies that uh people have been adding of women um 
to the platform. So in 2017, uh, British physicist Jessica Wade um, began a project to create more entries for women scientists on Wikipedia. Uh, and this is one of many projects like this. Um, yeah. And as of 2019, she just herself, through her own like efforts and project, had created over 700 pages. So that's a pretty huge endeavor. Um, and that's obviously pretty successful just based on the sheer amount of entries that she's created. Uh, but it's also just been extraordinarily challenging for her. In November of 2019, an editor flagged 50 of Wade's profiles for deletion because the subject was not, as they call it, notable enough. So this just means that the women Wade were writing about, um, according to this person who flagged them, didn't have enough mentions of their work in secondary sources to meet Wikipedia's notability rules for entries. So in theory, having a rule that says that someone has to be notable in order to get an entry on Wikipedia makes sense. Like, this is true for, like, you know, the encyclopedias that people would sell door-to-door -door as well. Uh, and, uh, and, and a platform like this, it's a way of making sure that, like, I don't write a Wikipedia entry for my cat. Um, or, or what? <laughs> Does your cat have a Twitter profile, Rebecca? No, Don't though, I sh though my cat should get a Twitter profile. Um, <laughs> or like for me, like I'm not notable enough either. Um, but many of the women that Wade, um, was writing about, uh, and making, um, uh, biography pages for, uh, are currently alive and producing research as we speak, and, uh, many of them are considered leaders in their fields. Uh, presumably Wade knew something about what she was talking about, and uh, she chose particular people who would she thought should pass the notability tests. Um, and so it's hard to believe that they don't actually live up to these standards. In an interview with BBC Radio 4, uh, Wade said, uh, quote, It was incredibly systemic. They went through all the profiles I'd written, and decided a few, who were completely notable and justifiable for the site, should have had a horrible tag that said they weren't notable. So I think in this case, um, <clears throat> voluntarism kind of falls apart. Um, Catherine Mayer, the CEO of the Wikimedia Foundation, even gets it. In an interview with The Telegraph, she said, quote, you can understand why with circumstances like this, it is frustrating for women who do decide to edit Wikipedia to remain involved when there are efforts to deliberately undermine their work, end quote. Yeah. Yeah, think. <laughs> you think? Um, <laughs> so, I mean, it kind of ex this kind of exposes one of the problems with saying, well, it's a volunteer thing, so anyone who wants to participate can just participate. Nobody's stopping them. When it's clear that when you look back in, at Wade's situation, I know that there are others, um, that that doesn't really matter. <laughs> um, and I think this debacle also exposes a problem with the idea of meritocracy in open source. Um, when media coverage of men and women is already at an unequal playing field and women academics are cited less than men, it's going to be more difficult to scrounge up the amount of sources needed to meet that arbitrarily set notability rule that Wikipedia has. So from the get, women are at a disadvantage and this quote unquote meritocracy uh, on the platform inherently favors men. And I think, oh, uh... Layla and I have like particular recent experience with this idea of like 
missing sources and like establishing, you know, notability that way. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, just in this ex- this example of women scientists, like it's incredibly difficult to do that for women in the past, uh, in particular. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But then, like another thing with the 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 women that Wade is working with too, like if it's a matter of like secondary citation, we know that like women academics in all fields don't get cited as much as you know their like male counterparts. Yeah. So like if we're doing this, if we're doing this like by tallying up citations and stuff, like that's always going to disadvantage women and particularly women of color. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And one of the women that uh, got flagged, uh, one of the entries that Wade tried to add, I think her name is Clarice Phelps, and she was a she's simple. She's not was she is alive a black woman who works at Oak Ridge and she like was a co-discoverer of an element. Yes. And, like, yes, I do. I remember the story. Yeah. Oh. And, and and like her her thing her profile or her biography got deleted. It was kind of the same issue with Donna Strickland who like came out of nowhere winning a Nobel prize and didn't even have a Wikipedia page yep. cuz she didn't re- meet the notability rules yeah. before she like got a Nobel prize. Like the standards of which women have to be notable is discover new element Nobel Prize. Like yeah. <laughs> to be able to get on Wikipedia. Yeah. Like it's it's like it's one yeah. of those things where both the like markers of notability are less accessible to women because of, you know, sexism out in the world. Um, to use a problem from uh, when it comes to historical examples uh, that's come up in these discussions a few times is uh, your con- one one marker of notability is that you had an obituary in the New York Times. Historically, right. there have been few women who have had obituaries in the New York Times. And in fact, the New York Times recently published a ton of them, I think in part in response to this problem, yeah. which is kind They're doing, like, retro obituaries, yeah. right? Like, writing obituaries for people that they missed back then because they were too racist and sexist right. to write them at that time. Right. Yeah, which is, which is like, they, it, it's kind of cool. They're trying to make up for that, realizing how important obituaries are to the historical record. Um, yeah. But even, like, when... Yeah, but I feel like even when the notability is objectively equal... Uh, women still end up falling under greater scrutiny. Uh, Mm -hmm. The experience that uh, people who I know who are Wikipedia editors who work really hard on getting new articles for women know is just that there is, there's a greater assumption that um, if a random person comes across a new article and skims it for notability, if it's an article about a woman, they're just kind of more likely to market as not notable and so i know people like um, regular wikipedia contributors who are extra careful before publishing an article about women a new one because they know it's gonna get a higher level of scrutiny one thing about the issue with the sources that still kind of blows my mind is like just because there are other secondary sources about a person doesn't mean one that they're good or <laughs> it's reliable. True. It's true. Or right. accurate. 
because Anna and I know this because we discovered at least two women that probably likely were not real and did not exist that have Wikipedia pages as if they were real and did exist. And like one of the ones that I was looking at is Aglanice, who maybe could have existed. We're not sure. Uh but the like Wikipedia page presents everything about her as fact. Even the sources that it uses is not even using them correctly because the sources also like the like academic papers about her that they're citing also admit that she like might not have existed. Like you think that would be an important <laughs> detail to And it's to just include. so it kind of like blows my mind that you know there are women who likely did not exist, and if they did exist, not in the way that Wikipedia is presenting it as fact. Um, While women who are discovering new elements in the present and their work is verifiable by other living humans around them are not able to get a Wikipedia page. That blows my mind. (laughs) You can easily Google many stories about just, like, wild Wikipedia drama. Oh, my God, yeah. Yeah, like, the sexism thing is, like, definitely, like, super prevalent, but even just, like, petty beefs about <laughs> about someone's, like, pet favorite topic that they have. And it's just, like, it's a whole other, like, internet ecosystem of its own that has yeah. its own rules. And I think mm-hmm. maybe that's, like, an important thing to think about. Like, these communities have their own culture and their own rules and their own kind of way of doing things that are not they may be kind of like built up by and structured by these what we think of as like good the good Mm -hmm. ethos of of open source communities but like what we have to think about like what the actual substance of them is and what it means to actually participate in that community especially if you're not I guess you know the editors who just like parade around here and take everything down and you're just trying to help I don't know at the Science History Institute, we have a Wikipedian in residence who's lovely. Uh, and she, a lot of her job is kind of explaining what, she does a lot of like how to use Wikipedia workshops. And uh, so much of what she does involves saying, so these are all the unspoken rules. And I know most of them are dumb, but this is the be- the way that I have found to navigate all of this community. Um, and it just goes to show that, like, yeah, even if any quote unquote anyone can do it, you sort of have to have an insider who is uh, going to welcome you in. Mm-hmm. And this gets back, I think, to the whole ninety percent of the people are men because, again, if you need right. an insider, and uh, insiders are more likely to kind of recruit people who look like them, and. Uh, and you need that as an entry into this community, then it's going to continue to perpetuate this idea that there are mostly men in there. Uh, and they, mm-hmm. you know, it's a project that was started by men and and requires, yeah, this this weird specialized knowledge. Just because, just because you you set it up for me to spike the ball about it. dunking on tech bros. <laughs> I'm just thinking about like the like the ethos of transparency and how it seems like if you are a person in tech and you just say the good words, then you expect everybody to give you credit for the good thing that goes with the good word happening, it's right? True. But like, 
on Wikipedia, like, what transparency means, like, in real terms is that you can, like, see the back end of Wikipedia and you can see all the changes that were made. But when we're talking about, like, unspoken rules and, like, this own kind of, like, in internal language and culture, like, that's not transparent. Like you said, you need an insider to show that to you. Mm-hmm. So it's just another case of, like, you have to be really, like, on alert for, like, techie buzzwords like this because they don't mean what people are trying to tell you they mean. Yeah. It just means you can look at the code and you can look at the people working on it. It doesn't mean that you automatically, like, know how it works. Again, because it's run by real human beings. Yep. Real people. Yep. Um, so, yeah, we've got another um, open source internet project that we're going to talk about today uh, that is near and dear to my heart and my adolescence. Um. So, did either of you guys ever have a live journal? I did not. I know what it is. <laughs> yes. But I never had one. You know, now that I'm like, I think I had one that I never posted in. I don't know. I know I had a MySpace. You should check in on that and see what's happened since then to that <laughs> I page. wouldn't even. Oh, yeah. God. Yeah. You have to search my AOL email address. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I was one of those big old nerds that did have a live journal and was involved <laughs> in like fanfic writing communities on live journal and uh, also wrote about my day um, and and everything in between. I have <laughs> friends still that I originally met because uh, we read each other's live That's journals. Nice. Oh. <laughs> I like That's that. <laughs> um, so I was deep in that community. It turns out there were, and I and I do think it's hilarious, like the different ways that people remember using Live Journal. Because I do remember it in this very like fandom fanfic writing specific way, um, but also just a lot of people did just use it like teenage diary writing kinds of things. And sure. like one, I I found uh, an article in researching this about like people reminiscing on the different ways they use live journal and some people were talking about how it was a way to like that was like outside the space of like high school and college drama where you could still talk to people but felt like removed from that slightly um which i thought was was charming uh but um yeah so that's my live journal memory but before we get too deep into me reminiscing about uh my late adolescence um, here's a little background for the uninitiated. Um, LiveJournal was and is, uh, an open source blogging platform that was created in 1999 by Brad Fitzpatrick. It reached its peak in popularity around 2005 or 2006, which, in my memory, it feels like it lasted so much longer than that, which just says something about, <laughs> like, the early aughts and, and the world. Um, but long before um, some Facebook, it served as a place for adolescent angst, oversharing, and keeping in touch with faraway friends. I think in some ways, like, MySpace did. Like, we kind of forget about these, yeah. like, pre-Facebook social media spaces. And, yeah, I had one And how that. weird they were in, like, a great way. Yeah. Putting song lyrics as your away message yes. on MySpace. Yes. Oh, so good. Yeah. Don't talk to me. I'm listening to my chemical romance. (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, so because LiveJournal is built on open source code, it is incredibly adaptable for users and allows them to make different kinds of customizations depending on their coding skill and interests. So for example, it's easy to change colors and fonts um, without knowing even how to code. But people who want to do a little bit more uh, can completely customize the look of their journal. A lot of people learn coding in order to get their LJ looking just the way they wanted. Um, some people even launched other journaling platforms using the same code. The most notable is probably DreamWidth, which launched in 2008 and was created by former LiveJournal employees. So something that makes LiveJournal different from Wikipedia, well, there are many things, but- Many things, so many things. Uh, an important difference is that most of the people who use LiveJournal are female, are women, instead of men, like on Wikipedia. I probably will say women and people who are not cis men. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and th so this is a space where women are quote unquote hacking an open source code. And that's despite the fact that like many tech communities, open source coding community itself is majority male. So you ha it's like this kind of like enclave for women to be doing this kind of like hacking and coding and customizing and you know, this little community of people, you know, doing tech. So I wonder what it is about, and I have my own ideas about this, but like, why is LiveJournal the place where this starts happening as opposed to other platforms? I was thinking that I think there might be some gendering to the journal yeah. aspect of it, like keeping a diary and that that is typically a practice that is coded female. Mm -hmm. um, even though when we look back on history, like men were keeping the same types of day journals that women were. So I don't know, even whatever. Like I was just something to do with emotions. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I was just yeah. going to say something like that. Like if you're a right, if you're a writer and you're a dude, it's totally, it's, perfectly fine to keep a journal but otherwise it's just totally gay I guess I don't know <laughs> yeah no and I, yeah and I think that there there's something like yeah about journal keeping and kind of like emotional and social journal keeping that just feels super like femme female coded mm -hmm. uh mm -hmm. that that I think leads to this kind of thing the other thing I think, I don't know, I, I was thinking about, something I was thinking about uh, is also that in putting this together, I realized that when people were, like, creating, like, all new, like, looks for their, their live journals and rewriting the code and stuff, I don't think I've ever heard it referred to as hacking um, or even right. coding. Like, it's called customization, uh, mm -hmm. and, and I feel like that is a, an interesting choice that in some way, I don't know, by doing that, like, like a woman or girl or, uh, again, like non-cis male person, someone who hasn't seen themselves in tech before, um, could look at something like LiveJournal and not say, oh, like other representations of tech, this is not for me. They use words like customization, yeah. and it's about, like, 
making my journal pretty in the same way that I like my doodle all over my like school notebooks. Um, it's just a different way of doing that. Um, and, and because it's created like on a totally different like stream um, than like the text stream, I think that the, that allows more space for, for people who don't feel wel welcome in tech communities. Um, so another thing uh, that I think might have added to the uh, female-driven nature of LiveJournal um, is this, this way that it served as a home for a lot of different fan communities in the early 2000s, um, especially fan fiction writers, fan artists, and uh, other creators of derivative works. And uh, these are communities that, uh, since the day of Star Trek fanfiction newsletters that people literally sent through the mail um, have been majority women. It's it's like there's this stereotype in I think fandoms that um, women like write fanfiction and men like memorize wh what lore. Oh, yeah, memorize lore. Yeah, and what obviously that's like a gross simplification. Um, I think it is something that plays out a little bit here. Oh, yeah, I agree. I, like, I, I can't speak to, like, fandom on LiveJournal because, like I said, I don't even think I had one. I am going to look into that just to make sure. <laughs> but I definitely wasn't writing fanfic when I would have been, like, LiveJournal age because I didn't even know that that existed because I loved a very sheltered internet life. I was mostly just kind of, like, on the, um, the AOL message boards looking for looking for posts about wicca uh <laughs> but they're like uh the history of like um fan communities and especially of like fan fiction writers is very much like a gendered history um there's a very good book you can read about the sort of beginning of fanfic uh culture that starts with like star trek newsletters um by constance penley called nasa slash trek yeah oh god that book is so good <laughs> it's so good i love it so good thank you for uh, reminding so... me that i need to read that because yeah it's great and it has some very saucy uh kirk uh spock <laughs> fan art in that yeah book. not safe for work that it one. is not safe for work <laughs> but that's like a good place to start to yeah. think and she just does a really great job of thinking about the way that like uh, women formed these communities and the reason that women in particular formed these kind of communities and the reason that uh, lots of early, like, especially Trek fanfic was, um, like, MLM fanfic. And there, like, there are very interesting reasons for that that have to do with... Um... Do I read the book? <laughs> In 2018, social scientist Casey Feisler conducted a survey of people who were involved in fan communities about where those communities had migrated over time. Um, and she found that from about 2005 onward, the majority of people she surveyed uh, were active in fan communities on LiveJournal. Um, but when you look at Feisler's data, you see a pretty significant decline in fan participation on the platform between 2012 and 2014. So what happened? Buckle up. <laughs> <laughs> so LiveJournal does still exist today, 
But it's a very different platform than it once was. Uh, and how it got that way is pretty crazy and involves Russia. <laughs> so here's a short version. A company called Six Apart bought LiveJournal from its creator in 2005 and then sold it to a Russian-based company called SUP in 2007. There were immediately concerns about how SUP was running the company, in part because of some clumsy usability changes they made, but also because people in Russia and in other parts of the world were worried that Russia's censorship and anti-obscenity laws uh, would apply to a platform that was seen as a free speech haven by fan fiction writers and Russian journalists alike. Um, because of these concerns, 8.2 million people left LiveJournal in 2011 alone. Oh my god. Um, so then, <laughs> in 2016, uh, LiveJournal, I guess, didn't learn its lesson and moved its servers from California to Russia, officially making the content subject to Russian law. Today, any journal that gets over 3,000 views a day is considered a media outlet and therefore subject to the country's censorship laws. So in addition to that, the platform's terms of service restrict content the Russian government considers quote-unquote obscene, which of course includes all content related to LGBTQ people. So where then did the fandom that lived on LiveJournal ultimately end up going? Uh, according to Pfizer's survey, fans split off into a few different online spaces. Um, the social media platform Tumblr is probably the biggest and most well-known of these spaces. But the other two are Archive of Our Own and Dreamwith. Archive of Our Own, or AO3, which is much easier to say, uh, is a fan fiction repository that was created in 2007, the same year that SUP bought LiveJournal. Um if you want to read about this, Thursday Bram wrote a great piece about AO3 for Lady Science last year. I really recommend that you check that out if you want to deep dive into the history of AO3 and the way it was built from the ground up as a feminist, user-driven space. AO3 is great. It is great. It's re- like it's really fascinating. Like the the architecture of the archive mm-hmm. is so good. It's so well made. Yeah. Yeah. As we mentioned earlier, Dreamwith is a direct offshoot of LiveJournal that took LiveJournal's open source code and adapted it, um, which is a process that coders call forking. Um, Both AO3 and Dreamwith are open source projects that have maintained a commitment to diversity and inclusion since their founding. And they're also both run by nonprofits and the majority of the staff and volunteers who contribute to both projects are women. This is very good. Yes, we approve. Uh, So something that's fascinating to me about what happened with LiveJournal is that um, I think it's this moment when, uh, again, like in the pre-Facebook era, uh, when people had to confront the power that a for-profit company had over uh, over an online space. Um, So LiveJournal for many users felt open and driven by the needs of the community, but it wasn't really. Um, And I think that today, a lot of people, uh, especially people like us who spend too much time online um, and and talk about it, uh, are way more aware of corporate ownership and like where a server is located matters or the like ideology of the owner of a platform matters. 
Um, I think we think way more about, like, Mark Zuckerberg and, like, who owns Facebook and what that means mm-hmm. for, like, our privacy um, than we did. Looking at you, Jack. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, than we did in the early 2000s. And I think it's, like, this weird, like, fundamental moment in change about, like, how we think about the internet uh, in that, like, yeah, I don't think people on LiveJournal in 2005 thought that much about the ownership aspect of the space. I could mm-hmm. be wrong. Maybe there were a lot of people who did. Um, but, yeah. Yeah, but I think that that's also, like, even if there were people who did think about it, I think it's more part of the conversation that, that even happens inside these spaces mm-hmm. themselves now. Like, one example that I was thinking of is, like, um, Recently, like last year sometime, Tumblr changed their uh, terms of service yes. so that you can't post um, you can't post any not safe for work stuff. And they have like a moderating algorithm or whatever that goes through and flags posts. And it's really bad and flags things that are not boobs all the time, <laughs> yeah. stuff like that. And like the a lot there's just like so much discussion on tumblr itself about the nature of the platform about the decisions that are made by the people who own it about the kind of ideological reasons for making this change and i think like that surfacing like and the platforms you know having this sort of complete circle about this is where we discuss what happens on this on this platform like i think maybe that's new for sure yeah, I, I think that also kind of it, it goes back to what we were talking about a little bit about Wikipedia and transparency. And like people are way more or at least somewhat more savvy about like transparency versus transparency. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, and I, and I do think that's why something like AO3 is such an interesting um version of an open source world and that there's there's a reason why uh we love it and uh why it is so uh female driven and um it feels like a different kind of project than a lot of like spaces online is because they have thought about okay what are our values how are we being transparent about them um what does it mean to be a nonprofit instead of a for-profit space uh, and mm-hmm. have thought about all of these different ownership pieces um, mm-hmm. in a way that Tumblr doesn't and Facebook doesn't and LiveJournal didn't. Well, I think this is a good, good place to bring in our guest because she has some stuff to say about the communities themselves talking about their communities <laughs> yeah. and things that they're they're trying to do to fix to fix these very problems that we're talking about. Let's welcome to the show Christina Hester Dunbar. She is an STS scholar and associate professor of communication at the University of Southern California Annenberg and the author of the new book Hacking Diversity: The Politics of Inclusion in Open Technology Communities. In Hacking Diversity, she looks at the efforts of open technology communities to improve diversity and inclusion, but also how these efforts to quote unquote hack their own culture, much like they would a technological problem, fall short of justice for minoritized people. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Thanks for having me. 
Um, well, just to get started, um, I wanted to say I love how you describe the process of putting this book together, going from quote unquote scattered thoughts to idea to research to writing and then finally to written. <laughs> and um, I'm not going to ask you to take us through each one of these stages, but if you could share with us those initial scattered thoughts that got you interested in studying open source technology and communities. Sure. Um this may bring me into a realm of em embarrassing admission, um, but my this is a sort of second project or almost a coda in certain ways to a project I had done earlier, uh, which was about media activism and people making claims about and trying to sort of think through political beliefs about democratic participation and emancipation using technology. And that study looked at people who were, even though they were building, or excuse me, even though they were very aware of the brand new, brand new newfangled technology, the internet were building radio stations. And this is in the early 2000s. So pretty recently, it wasn't like digital tech was out of, out of reach for them. And so I was interested in sort of tracing their particular beliefs and practices around technology and how they related to a broader politics of emancipation. And one of the things that they were really invested in was uh, questioning expertise and really uh, building technical artifacts, radio stations, uh, electronics, soldering, circuit boards as a kind of DIY that was meant to sort of spark an awakening for people that, you know, you don't have to leave technological practice or technological decision-making to so-called experts. You can do it yourself. You can put your hands on the technology. And so that was a really important pedagogical and political tool for them. What they ran into though was a collision between their belief that this was universally accessible and a really great way to spark people's political imaginations with the fact that there are and were historical patterns around who in the society holds expertise or is anointed as a technical expert, largely having to do with race and gender. Mm -hmm. And so that was my initial project. And I was a little naive when I went into that project. I thought I wasn't going to look at, say, race, class, and gender issues, because especially gender issues, feminist studies of technology, there were already really excellent ones. And I kind of thought, other people have covered that. I don't really need to do it here. But what wound up happening was it was just so salient in the site. Uh, my actors were really struggling with their own deeply held, very inclusive beliefs. And on the one hand, and the fact that they were in spite of themselves, basically reinscribing some of these patterns. And so that was an earlier project. Those topics were about one chapter of that book, which is called Low Power to the People and came out on MIT Press uh, in 2014. When that project was done, it was around the time that I was noticing the stirrings of people confronting these issues in hacking and open source communities in a very direct way and in a way that was new in those communities. And so I basically thought, you know, I've been naive. Let's maybe 
put some of what I've learned about how important this stuff is and how hard it is uh, to work and make it the focus of a new project. And so that's when I started the research that became this book. But it really was a direct, for me, a through line between that earlier project and even some of the same people who I was talking to, to them about radioactivism stuff and they were telling me, oh, we just came back from the HOPE conference, Hackers on Planet Earth, where we did an intervention and we, uh, I talk about this in the book, they were selling t-shirts that had this um, graphic that they made on them that was playing on the Ted Stevens remark about the internet's not a series of tubes, or it is a series of tubes, it's not a truck that you dump something on. You know, the sort of shot heard around the world for people laughing about net neutrality stuff. They kind of detourned that and turned it into a feminist hacker intervention. And so I was like, oh, there's this interesting stirring here. And I just kind of followed that thread and wound up with this book. And that shirt, right, if I'm remembering correctly, it's series of tubes and it's like the fallopian tubes, right? Yeah. On the shirt. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So they, that sorry. Made me, yeah. It made me giggle. Yeah. I, <laughs> I, I had the thought if I was the, a person at this conference, I would probably buy this t-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> not going to lie. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was a um, real crowd pleaser and they did sell t-shirts for a little while. And every time I put that talk, or that graphic up in a talk, yeah, people are pretty amazed. It's a good one. So. <laughs> And how, how, is, how are those communities la seen as lacking in uh, diversity? Eh, complicated answer. So there's a strongly held, not necessarily explicit, but um, sort of core tenet is that it's available to whoever wants to come do it. Um, and the openness here is doing a lot of work. You know, open source means the code is open, but it's also, I think it, especially in the sort of Western political imaginary uh, sort of sparked certain beliefs about, you know, a liberal town square or a sort of place that all may enter. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, again, a sort of unquestioned tacit and, you know, longstanding belief of, of folks who participate in this. And there wasn't a lot of impulse to self-study about whether or not these beliefs were actually true or if they weren't, why they weren't. The historical artifact I point to in the book that I think galvanized conversations that might've been happening anyway, but gave people something to you know, really latch onto and sink their teeth into was an EU study in the mid 2000s that was an economic policy report uh, looking at open source and thinking of open source as a place that the governments of the EU could support innovation. But basically, when they studied open source, they found that there was an incredibly low participation. And they were, I think, framing that essentially as a missed economic opportunity. But that report gave community members this, you know, piece of research that, you know, instead of doing their own self-study, but that allowed people to articulate some of the stuff that I think they'd been observing. It showed that the rate of participation by women was like less than 2%. Gender sort of opened the conversation. Uh, there are also threads of discussion about uh, global North, global South relations. Uh, English language has been, you know, sort of hegemonic presence. And so people coding in other parts of the world 
to participate in, in sort of mainstream open source wind up using language and grammar and syntax from English. That also, of course, there are, you know, other cultural, racial, ethnic categories. Um, so I really view this as a, a mutable category. Gender seemed to sort of open it up, uh, but then it goes a number of different places. And early on in the book, you explore the evolution of the word geek and that its association with things like maleness and whiteness precede computing. So kind of these issues of diversity that you were talking about kind of wrapped up in this word. Um, And so can you take us back through a brief history of geek and the context that it gives us for thinking about the problem of diversity inclusion in hackerspaces and open technology today? Yeah, absolutely. Um, That's a great question. And one that is sort of fun for the researcher. Something I do (laughs) is, you know, sit down with the Oxford English Dictionary, right? Uh, The first iteration (laughs) of geek has nothing to do with its modern day, most common iteration around, you know, tech geeks or, or whatnot. It's actually circus freaks. And the person who bit the head off a chicken was a geek. Uh, so there's this sort of grotesque, you know, freakish dimension that is, you know, embodied in this certain way. And that's from the early 20th century. The first application of the word to computing or just to being sort of diligent is maybe by the 50s and certainly by the 80s, uh, geek has, you know, got a kind of subculture around it. So the other thing to recognize is the rise of technical expertise, especially around electronics that happened, again, around the turn of the 20th century. So preceding electronic computing by a number of decades, but work in history of radio and history of electricity showed ways in which the practitioners of those electronic pursuits basically what we now call uh, electrical engineering didn't have the social status that it does now when it was new. When it, when it was new, it didn't really have much cultural meaning or status attached to it at all. So one of the ways that the people engaged in pursuing it and carving it off as domain where their expertise, you know, mattered to the wider society, they hitched their own status. And these were mostly native born uh, to the U.S. white men. They hitched their own social status to their work with this new technology. And one of the ways that they did this was to essentially set outside members of other social groups. So including women, including rural people, immigrants, indigenous people, and members of the lower classes. So they invented their own expertise and social status alongside the technology. And the way these two threads come together is that, as I said, the sort of original geek, it was an insult, really. And it meant you were kind of like a freak about something. You know, as these threads sort of come together, as computing eventually, and, you know, electronics more widely, but especially computing, gain the social status, geek kind of flips from being a term of insult to more of a kind of fond in-group 
identification or teasing. And then eventually it just kind of becomes like the geeks who are taking over the world or something, right? It's complex, but it has come, you know, along with its rise in, in stature and the sort of importance of, quote, tech in our society has been imported the earlier cultural work uh, of exclusion of essentially folks who weren't, weren't white, weren't men, weren't native born, et cetera. And so one of the, the hard things, I think, with the communities that I'm looking at in the book is understanding the sort of full implications, you know, whether or not they agree with it, that history is there. And I think you can even make an argument that the project even of talking about STEM as a separate and important you know, thing in the society is a project of social sorting. And so to sort of buy into a very vaunted notion of technology is, is to buy into uh, some of that cultural work, unless you're really sophisticated about you know, separating the two out. And that's kind of, I think, where we are now. Yeah. One, one thing that you talk about in the book was when you discuss um, sort of race in 20th century electronics and that basically if you're a white man who's tinkering with stuff, you're a cool tinkerer or a successful tinkerer. And if you are a black man who is tinkering with stuff, then you're causing trouble. And that, that's a gross simplification, but I feel like that's part of the, the story there you tell. And it was definitely one of those moments where I was like, right, right, of course. Because it, it shows how, like, the way in which these both racial and gender and also gender divisions that show up in all aspects of, of our society are also showing up very, very, like, plainly mapped onto these geek communities as well. Uh, so I thought that was a really interesting example. Yeah, absolutely. Um, part of what a hacker is or has the potential to be is someone who's a little bit of an outlaw or, you know, a little bit of a mischief maker or, you know, um, again, proceeding, computing, uh, doing stuff like picking locks or doing amazing tricky things with the telephone system to place long distance calls without right. paying you know, whiteness has been a resource for folks engaged in that to have those activities be viewed as, you know, harmless masculine pranking rather than criminal behavior. Members of, say, African-American communities aren't necessarily striving to, you know, be outlaws in the same way that uh, technological actors who are white are. They might be striving for you know, recognition in the mainstream without being treated as an outlaw. So your book is, of course, uh, as well as tracing the uh, history and how these different hacking and open source communities work. Uh, you specifically are looking at diversity initiatives in these open technology communities. And uh, you you note that perhaps because, because they're in open technology communities, they sometimes... Um, we'll use this idea of finding technological hacks to social ills. And so can you uh, give some examples of some of these hacking methods that uh, they are attempting to apply to problems of diversity and inclusion and uh, why you think they often fail? You know, multiple times I've run into language where people are saying, you know, this lack of diversity along, you know, XYZ axis 
or this instance that we had of, you know, harassment or abuse in our community is a bug. We need to, you know, strip it out, change the code, put in a patch, whatever. And using these sort of readily available metaphors from hacking and coding. And I mean, on the one hand, I think it's very understandable that this would be the language that they would uh, go right. to, you know, that's, if that's the vocabulary that you're using. And, and it may even also be a way of bounding it and, and making it almost seem manageable for a voluntaristic tech community. Like we're able to, you know, hack and patch other kinds of problems. So if we call it this, then we'll be able to, to handle it. Um, and I'm, I'm sort of eminently sympathetic to that. Uh, the thing that I think can be more problematic is not recognizing that there are basically issues of scale here. There are things that these communities can do and have done, I think, very effectively. Uh, things like instituting codes of conduct or making explicit rules about governance in ways that can bring to the surface uh, assumptions about how a project or a space would be run. Again, a lot of things with voluntaristic founding histories happen because one person or a couple people were really enthusiastic and they kept showing up. And, you know, this is called like founder syndrome or, or charismatic <laughs> leader kind of stuff. You know, those are the people whose energy brought the thing into being uh, and maybe kept it going initially. But those associations often through you know, sort of friendly goodwill, they, they breed homophily, they breed bringing on people who maybe resemble those folks, but also agree with that. And so I think one thing that these groups can do is say, is this how we want to run this project? Do we want to maybe explicitly, you know, have governance rules or have a rule that we're going to turn over leadership every X number of months or years or something? However people decide to do it, I think, is, you know, obviously up to them. But even just saying, well, are we actually happy running things according to invisible norms that we never talked about? Or do we want to bring them up and, you know, subject them to uh, scrutiny by the community? Just having those conversations, I think those are very appropriate, uh, sometimes, you know, tense or challenging, but scale appropriate and and effective uh, for talking about what's going on. Where it gets a little trickier, the status of technology in our culture has for a very long time been associated with the status of certain kinds of people who are designated as as experts in technological fields. That sort of bigger project and the way that tech sort of writ large is freighted with matters of social sorting, of social dominance... Those are bigger problems for a voluntaristic group uh, to handle. I mean, I think the very first thing that people can do is kind of understand some of that stuff and maybe get their analysis right. But it's really hard to solve that stuff within your community because people are bringing to it, you know, cultural legacies that far precede any of these individuals. Uh, And another thing I think that's going on is we're in a cultural moment where tech is 
assumed to be so powerful and the sort of end all be all, that doesn't necessarily mean we have to agree with that uh, or <laughs> yeah. we have to look to it as, you know, the place where we solve all kinds of social problems. And I think, again, this is something that technologists sometimes don't get right. But again, it's not something they can solve within their own milieus. Diversity in tech, quote unquote, might be an outgrowth of a more sort of just and equal society and not the cause. Um, but if, if we were really to sort of zoom out and think about, you know, social justice, we might think about public school and other kinds of economic equality and libraries and healthcare and things that really, again, are not appropriate for volunteer technologists to solve. Again, I, I'm not faulting anyone for not getting that uh, accomplished in those spaces. They're really hard problems. But again, I think at the very least, we should be clear about the terms. And so I wouldn't actually say that they're necessarily failing at all. It's, um, I think sometimes they are failing to live up to the potential of some of the stuff that they're wanting to engage in. But some of these problems really exceed the domains that they're, they're working in. And the other thing I do want to point out about these spaces and how there's a kind of slippage in, in rhetoric is diversity is a really, you know, corporate and institution friendly concept. <laughs> and so I think sometimes there's a really strong and sincere idea that these folks are like doing social justice work by doing diversity work in tech. And I want to sort of point out, again, if you don't engage, you know, matters of power and, and social structure and stuff, you can actually wind up doing stuff that just kind of cultivates market friendly uh, things, you know, cultivating consuming subjects or producing subjects for diverse markets. And again, I'm not saying it's terrible if you want to do that, but you should be kind of maybe aware of the, the waters you're swimming in were yeah. largely, you know, I'm tripping over metaphors, but the, you know, it's, it's really hard <laughs> yeah, to like yeah. do that kind of work without having it feed back into these logics, which sometimes are the opposite of the intention that you're bringing to it. Mm-hmm. I, I found you, I found your book fascinating. Uh, so uh, thank you for getting in touch with us and, uh, and connecting us with it. Yeah, thank you both so much. Um, I, I love your project, The Lady Science, and I'm thrilled to be uh, participating in, in your project there. All right, y'all, that's going to do it for us today. Tell us what you thought about the episode by leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts so that new listeners can find us. And if you have questions about any of the segments today, tweet us at LadyXScience or hashtag LadySciPod. And for show notes, episode transcripts to sign up for our monthly newsletter, read monthly issues, pitch us an idea and more, visit LadyScience.com. We are an independent magazine, so that means we depend on the support from our readers and listeners. You can support us through a monthly donation with Patreon or through one-time donations. Just visit ladyscience.com donate. And until next time, you can find us on Facebook at at LadyScienceMag and on Twitter and Instagram at LadyXScience.